Hi, this is Anishka Fernandopoli. I hope this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button under my picture on dharmaseed.org or go to my website, anushkaf.org, A-N-U-S-H-K-A-F.org, and click on donate. Thanks. I appreciate your support. So I'm happy to get to be back here with you all again. Uh, My name is Anushka, like I had mentioned before, and I live in San Francisco. And uh, among other things, I'm a Dharma teacher. I've trained with uh, Jack Cornfield, one of your usual group leaders here as a uh, Dharma teacher and I teach some retreats and things like that. And then otherwise also have other activities I do in the world. Um, My profession, In general, before that, was doing uh, consulting work, like organizational development consulting, working with groups, um, particularly a lot of nonprofit groups, but also other kinds of groups. And then I do um, coaching work, like one-on-one work with people. And uh, other things I do are, are, uh, I'm on a board in the city of San Francisco that's around community development and advising the city around uh, what kind of community development should be done and I also like uh, films a lot. I just spent some time this weekend at the Asian American Film Festival, which is going on in San Francisco um, this week, which I recommend you check out too. But here I'm not going to talk about films tonight, uh, but I'm going to talk about the Dharma. And particularly I want to talk about the Dharma and watching the news or reading the news. So... uh, Everything can be brought into our dharma practice. And in fact, in the uh, Satipatthana Sutta, which is one of the main teachings that the meditation practices of this lineage uh, have been devised from, um, the Buddha talks explicitly about developing mindfulness of different foundations. So developing mindfulness, becoming aware, becoming present in the body, becoming present of emotions, the mind, becoming Uh, aware of pleasant, unpleasant, neutral feelings. Becoming aware of different aspects of the Dharma, the Four Noble Truths, uh, the different factors of enlightenment, and to do all of these things, to become aware of them both internally and externally. So this is kind of an interesting, uh, and sometimes people are surprised to hear this, that he talks about internal and external, because mostly you think about, oh, meditation, that's very internal, right? So I'll read you the beginning of it, which I feel is very inspiring too. So in this um, sutta, he's talking about the four establishments of mindfulness. This is the one-way path for the purification of beings, for the surmounting of sorrow and lamentation, for the passing away of pain and dejection, for the attainment of the true way, for the realization of nibbana, namely the four establishments of mindfulness. So this is one of my favorite passages from the suttas. It's pretty inspiring, right? Surmounting of sorrow and lamentation. So that sounds very good, right? You'd like that. Uh, Passing away of pain and dejection. Also sounds good, right? Attainment of the true way and the realization of Nibbana. So then he does go through the different aspects of the body, of the mind. And in each of them there's kind of a refrain. So it's kind of like a chorus kind of thing. 
you know, in pop songs, there's like a chorus that repeats after each uh, set of verses. And in each of the choruses, he specifically talks about this paying attention internally and externally of all of these different things. So, for example, talking about the um, Four Noble Truths or about the Seven Enlightenment Factors. So, the practitioner dwells contemplating whatever it is as itself, internally, externally, and both internally and externally. And then uh, not clinging to anything in the world. So I start with that because this is actually part of our meditation practice too. So paying attention not just internally to what's happening in our own uh, mind-body system, but also to paying attention to notice what is there externally and both reflecting on that as well as uh, contemplating in different ways the Dharma as it is. All right, let me check the sound. It's like, can, can everyone hear me? Okay, all right. So there's an example, right? I could just sit here talking and nobody could hear me. And <laughs> that would be a problem if I was just being internal about it <laughs> in this particular role, right? Uh, so one way in which we take in information about the world is through the news. Right? So the news and many different ways that you get the news. So some people um, might watch news on TV. Some people might read the newspaper. Some people might get news online. Uh, some people might get it through email. Uh, many different ways, radio, news also. Right? So I feel like there, it's, it's an aspect of being a person in the modern world, and there's many different angles on it that it's helpful to pay attention to. So the first one, I think, is about just the consumption of news itself. And I use that word consumption uh, consciously because there is a way in which we are taking in information. And it's helpful for us to be aware of, you know, what is the effect of taking in this information on ourself. So just like it's good to be aware of what kind of food you take in, or uh, what kind of drink you take in, or what kind of substances you imbue yourself with, and then what is the effect on your mind-body system of these different kinds of nutrition. So similarly, it's helpful to notice, well, what's the effect of taking in different kinds of news? Uh, you know, just like it might be good to reflect on, you know, how much should I drink or how much should I eat? How much news should I take in? What's the balance for me? So notice what happens to your mind as you take in more news and what kinds of news. And notice, uh, as you're paying attention to it, what is going on in your body-mind system. So there can be any uh, a compulsion developed with anything. So there can be a kind of craving for information. And I think our modern... Uh, age, particularly with 24-hour cable news stations and the internet where things are always available, uh, you could pretty much read the news all the time. And, you know, there's some uh, drive towards that in some ways. So even if you're, you're doing something else, if you have a TV set on, there's like a ticker going of the news like that. Or if you check your email, depending on what email service you have, you might get some pieces of the news there. So it's good to be aware of what your relationship is to this activity of taking in the news, of reading the news, of becoming informed about things. And like with everything, being aware of the effect on yourself as well as what is my intention in doing this? So what am I trying to do in participating in connecting with the news? So I'm not about to suggest that we all go into news lockdown or you know 
recede from the news. So I actually think it's very helpful uh, in many ways that we can connect with what's happening in the world, you know, that we know what's going on. Both because that helps us to act in different ways and because everything is interconnected. So it's helpful to know well, what's happening over here. It's not just like, oh, that's happening over there, so that's for those people. You know, there's, there's ways in which everything uh, affects all of us. Kind of like a big spider web you know, of interconnection. And then you, know, you touch one part and you feel the whole thing move. You could notice also when you're paying attention to news, uh, your heart. So staying connected with your heart. So a lot of news tends to be news that is uh, difficult, bad news, about disasters, about uh, murders, uh, about people behaving in ways that are unskillful. That tends to be reported much more than uh, positive news. So it can also be difficult to take in a lot of this news. So, for example, any of you who have been following the news um, might have heard about the big earthquake in Japan. Right, and then the tsunami after that, and then what's going on there around uh, nuclear reactors possibly uh, melting down, and you know a lot of uh, difficulty. So notice one's tendency to either reach out for that and what's behind that, or to pull away from that too. It can be very difficult to contact a lot of human suffering. You know, like the magnitude of suffering of a big uh, earthquake and people dying and, you know, for many of us it's not something that we ourselves have witnessed and it's hard to open up to that. It's just, uh, like, terrifying. So you can actually make this part of your practice just in that way too. You know, when you're paying attention to the news, pay attention to how you're feeling. Notice when you're starting to close down. And then at that point, notice, okay, do I want to kind of press on and read about this? Do I want to stop, pay attention, see, like, can I soften, open? Also then, what's a response? So one part of the practice is just noticing what it is that's going on. So am I shrinking back? Uh, am I reaching out? Uh, you know, does this become just like an exciting sort of dramatic story, like it's happening over there? Am I actually connecting with what's happening to other people? So you can actually bring in practices like compassion practice, for example. You know, when you're noticing that you're connecting with the difficulty of suffering in the world, could actually just bring even as simple as a phrase of like, oh, may you all be free from suffering, you know. Or whatever it is in your real authentic voice is that expression of compassion. Like, oh, that's so hard, you know. Just connecting with that uh, sense of wishing well, and particularly wishing well for those who are in a difficult time. So I have some particular connection to um, Japan because I went there on a, a visit in November. And it was the first time that I had been to Japan. I'd really wanted to go for um, a lot of my life for some reason. I was very interested in the culture and uh, many aspects of the country. And then a friend of mine's um, brother uh, lives there, works there, and he was having his, a significant birthday there. So then uh, she was going to go on a trip and invited me to come along with her. So we went, and uh, it was a, a very uh, interesting and amazing trip, both of getting to meet people and see the culture and 
both in the uh, temples in Kyoto that we saw, a lot of really amazing and beautiful Buddhist temples. And then Tokyo itself, you know, someone who is interested in cities, it's an amazing city, like incredible infrastructure, incredible public transport system, you know, just uh, really uh, fascinating. Uh, I think it's the biggest city in the world, actually, something like 18 million people or something like that. So much bigger than New York uh, City. So I have a particular connection to um, what is happening there since I was there just a few months ago. Um, so I have been following that um, both through the news of my friends who live there um, and also in the general news. And someone had sent me a link to um, some uh, video about the tsunami coming in. And uh, my family is originally from Sri Lanka, so there was a tsunami there you know, in 2004. Um, but it seems like um, there were perhaps less people with video cameras hanging around in <laughs> Sri Lanka or something that you know, perhaps Japanese technology contributed to. It seems to me like there's a lot of video footage of this happening. So here's an example of sort of reflecting on something in the news and you know, bringing Dharma into it. So how many people have seen something like this, this video of a tsunami footage? So a lot of people, right? So in the one that I saw, there was a guy and he's, uh, or a person with the video camera. And first it looks like kind of normal. And there's some cars parked and there's some buildings and um, there's people standing up higher on this cliff. So you kind of wonder what this person is doing down lower, right? <laughs> but then, okay, so their filming is going on and then the water starts coming in from the uh, tsunami. And at first it doesn't seem to be coming as fast, but it's definitely coming in, rushing, rushing, rushing. And I felt this question in me, like, how, how much is going to come in? You know, even though kind of you know the conclusion of the story, like a lot, right? There's this sense like, oh, how much water is going to come in? And then the water keeps coming in and then the cars start to float, right? Uh, you might have seen this. The cars and the vans start to float around. And I noticed this sense of kind of awe at the nature. You know, it's kind of like a bathtub with little toys bobbing around. So these big vehicles are just bouncing around like that. Uh, and then the water keeps coming, and then there's this moment when the houses start to move, too. Right? So the, the water's coming in so much that then these, these structures uh, shift and break and uh, start to be destroyed. And then at this point, the um, cinematographer starts to move towards the higher ground, so, uh, which I guess is how we got the, the footage, too. But I noticed that moment when the buildings moved in that, it was just some shift in me, like, oh... And I noticed in that this awareness that uh, I expect buildings to be stationary. <laughs> like as much as I know that everything is impermanent, there was this way in which I expected the buildings to stay still. And it was unsettling, you know, which is maybe the pun kind of word for it. It's unsettling internally to see the unsettling externally of nature and the buildings. But it also is good just to notice that. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of awesome and frightening, but also it's a sign. Like, you notice when you're surprised by something, like, oh, there was an assumption I had. Like, I had this assumption that buildings would stay still. Like, the cars, okay, yeah, cars, things happen to them. But the buildings, I thought those were solid. These look like serious buildings, right? It's like, no, everything is impermanent. Everything is changing. Nothing is, is solid like that, too. Unfortunately, in this video, the people are safe. They're up on the uh, kind of cliff watching this. Um, and it looks like it's on a uh, kind of mountain, so it's earth. So it's not something that's going to get um, swept away. 
But then I can only imagine the people who actually, this is their house. You know, I'm watching this like it's not my house, it's a house. But someone for whom this is their house. This is their uh, stuff. You know, this is their life, their neighborhood, all floating away. And that sense of uh, poignancy and pain to see like, oh yeah, how much we do get attached to those things and how difficult it is to be in that circumstance, like your whole town wiped away like that. So then bringing up a sense of compassion for that, of feeling with empathy, like that would be really, really hard. You know, that's really hard for those people. And then from that could also be, a, well, what could I do then? You know, what's something that I can do? You know, whether that's from, you know, donating something or, you know, whatever it is your particular skills are around it. So contemplating internally and externally. So internally, when we pay attention to our body, to our emotions, to our mind, we notice impermanence. So we notice that all of the body sensations that we're attending to change and morph, and they're not solid. And when you pay attention to them closely, you can see there's nothing personal about them. It's not like me uh, in that moment of it. So similarly, you can notice externally, like, oh yeah, everything is impermanent, everything is moving, everything is shifting. So that's one of the three characteristics. Dukkha, so strain, stress, suffering. It's so obvious, it's like so soaked in all of this, in the natural disaster, in the difficulties of human beings being displaced, uh, and it's not under anyone's control. You know, all this stuff is just happening. So my friends... um, who are there uh, also are sort of reporting on this too. And it's interesting um, because so some of these people are my friends on Facebook. I think the last time I was here I was talking about technology, right? Dharma and technology. So some of these people are my friends on Facebook. And um, I also actually have some friends in uh, Cairo on Facebook, which I'll get to next. So, you know, get these updates from people who, so my friends in Japan is like standing in line for water. Uh, you know, helping people dig out their uh, uh, homes, you know, different things like that. And then my friends who are in, say, you know, like Western Massachusetts are like baking pie for dinner. And, you know, it's just like all the spectrum of life going on there from natural disasters to calmly baking pie and nothing's wrong and, you know, all these different things. Like life's rich pageant right there. And had it been, you know, a different moment, uh, actually, my friend is a um, is a dancer. He's a uh, performs in um, Disneyland, so he often writes stuff about his you know the shows and things like that. But now it's a completely different uh, kind of take on things. But also, I can see in his uh, postings and the news that he's sharing that he actually is really engaging in a very beautiful way with what's happening. So his friends were mostly people who are dancers and entertainers, uh, expats who are living there in Tokyo. Um, and really great people, had a really nice time meeting them, um, but they weren't particularly engaged with the society, it didn't seem to me, uh, in some way. But now after this disaster, and they're all like pretty young, healthy, strong people, they're really banding together to help out neighbors and uh, are going out and helping uh, dig out people's homes and helping get water for people who are older and can't stand in the lines. And, um, it, I think it's also good to see in disasters, like, oh, to appreciate the compassion and the kind of generous actions that people take, too. So I've appreciated that about being able to be in touch with him in this way. So as I mentioned, also, I have a friend who is in uh, in Cairo, 
And so then also I've been hearing about the revolutions going on there. So that's another big thing that's been up in the news lately, the revolutions and uh, political and social movements in the Arab world. So it's interesting to notice the news reporting on this too. And uh, it seems like there's, there's not a lot for a while, and then suddenly it's all about Egypt, right? And then that kind of goes away, and then it's all about Libya, and then that kind of goes away. And so you can notice also you know, what you get sort of fed you know, to be aware of the uh, level of objectivity or non-objectivity and what becomes the news, per se. Because uh, I can tell you from my friend's um, notices that she puts on uh, Facebook also that it's not finished in Egypt. You know, <laughs> it's, it's died out of the news cycle, but that still is going on in a big way. Right? So I became interested in this also from the standpoint of like, oh, there's this reporting is kind of about, well, here are these tyrants, like here are these people who are these dictators, and now they're falling. So democratic uh, movements are pulling down these people who had been holding power. And I always notice when there's some kind of more uh, black and white, us and them kind of comic book-like story, you know, about how things are presented. Like, it's good to check in on that. Like, oh, what's going on there? You know, what's the, the, the angle on that? And then reflect on that also in terms of uh, one's own self. Like, what's going on inside of me? Both in relationship to that story, but also uh, in some analogous way, is there something that is, goes on for myself? So I'll explain, that might be a little bit cryptic um, in that way. So what is it? It seems like there, was, there were all these people in these countries who uh, knew that they didn't have a lot of freedom for a long time, so it wasn't news to them. But then people started to connect, partly using social media and technology, uh, to be able to realize how many other people were sharing their same uh, ideas. Also through the news, people were really inspired. Um, I believe it was... Um, uh, one person in another country who had uh, immolated himself right, for freedom, and this, he was like a fruit vendor or something like that, you know, and he just decided to do this thing, and then he was, insp- he was inspired to a lot of different people uh, about freedom. So interconnection. So, you know, we think like, oh, what I do doesn't matter, you know, but this one person has kind of set off this wave of different events all over a whole region. And also, all these people had these different uh, feelings before. I'm sure it wasn't like suddenly they woke up and were like, oh, our political system is oppressive. You know? Like, I'm sure they knew that for a long time, right? but not sure what to do about that. And there's some uh, interesting stories about how people connected with each other. Um, I read one story about um, the use of a, a wedding, a, a matrimonial site. So some a Muslim matrimonial site in which some people would post messages to each other and uh, they were like love letters, but coded in the love letters was like how many people I have who I could bring to this demonstration, you know, or uh, how many people, depending on how many L's you put in the word love, you know, when you write it out or something like that. It said like how many people I've got and how many people you have. And there was this idea when we have a certain mass of people, then we could actually make something happen. So there's this way in which the being able to connect uh, to others and understand like what other people are feeling uh, helps to bring about freedom. So on a more uh, internal level, this is true also. So being able to connect more closely 
to know the truth of what's happening in your own experience. And being able to connect with other people helps bring freedom. Now, in many of these um, countries, there was someone who is uh, maybe a, a non-democratically elected person, or you know, if they were at some point, then they hadn't been for the next 35 years, but stuck around. Uh, and then there's this overthrowing of this tyrant. So that's the, the storyline. So it's like, oh, here's this person who is um, bullying us or imposing something, and then we have to find freedom from that. So it kind of made me reflect on, well, what's the, what's the analogous situation internally for me or for us? Like, is there some way in, in which we also are living in some tyranny that we're not really aware of? Or that we feel like we kind of tolerate, like we go through, you know, living with it. So in some ways you could say that until you are completely enlightened and completely aware of whatever it is that is going through your mind-heart, seeing it clearly for what it is, being able to see through all of those temporary visitors as just what they are, you are being run by tyranny. So when we're mindful, a thought arises in our head, uh, like, oh, I want this. Or a thought arises, like, oh, I'm afraid of that. The feeling comes through of this hatred, of this fear. So when we're mindful, we can see it as a thought. We can feel the emotion, the sensations as what they are. But we're actually able to have the space from it that we don't have to react to everything that comes through. But when we're not mindful, whatever it is that rolls through our mind or our body drives us. So uh, we're in some ways at the mercy of these forces until we can actually see through them, see them for what they are. So that doesn't mean not doing anything that occurs to you, right? But it does mean that bringing a sense of presence to your mind-body experience can bring that actually kind of um, liberation, that kind of freedom. Otherwise, when you sit, for example, in your meditation, or more likely even when you move around in the world, different opinions come up for you. And it's actually uh, uncommon that we will see through our opinions. So usually we believe everything that we think. <laughs> Have you noticed this? So whatever it is that happens to float through our mind, uh, we take it seriously. Uh, we buy into it. Uh, we don't really question it. And then we proceed to build our worlds around it, uh, sometimes with enormous amounts of effort. So oftentimes not seeing that the seed of all of this you know, giant creation was an unseen, unscheduled, undesired thought moment. And one that wasn't even that helpful. <laughs> so you can build things up in your mind hugely. So even as you're sitting here, some of you might have had this experience of... Um, you know, a simple body sensation coming up. Uh, a small wiggling motion that you experienced in what we could call your knee, for example. And it could have been just what it is, just that sensation. But then with that wiggling came the thought like, oh, my knee hurts. And then buying into believing that thought, then we think, 
I wonder how much longer the sitting is going to go. I wonder if it's bad if I open my eyes and look at my watch. (coughs) Oh no, if I don't move, it's going to happen again. If it happens again, it's going to be so painful. I remember that time I was sitting and it was so hard. How do these people sit like this anyway for so long? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So one small thing that came through just like that, which we could have seen just for what it is, just for that sensation, and even just for the thought as thought, has become this whole huge configuration. Now in this case, maybe maybe you moved, maybe you didn't move. Uh, Maybe you did something, maybe you didn't do something. But in some ways you could say that thought was your tyrant. So that thought ruled you. So that thought came in, it set up shop, you let it uh, run your system. And think about how often that happens in your life in general. So unexamined, these thoughts, these emotions come through, and some of them are skillful, positive, generosity, compassion, uh, connection, courage, and some of them are very unskillful, are about fear, about division, are about jealousy, uh, about hatred. And if we can't see each of them for what it is, we just get driven. So that thought owns you. You are in bondage to that thought. You are not free. And the one that I was describing about sitting in the knee uh, movement is a relatively innocuous one. But there's much bigger ones that come along that, uh, or they seem bigger. It's actually the same. This is a, actually a helpful insight to see that every thought is kind of the same substance or insubstantiality. But we'll build up a huge thing around it. So think about the last thing that you did that you regret. Okay. And if you reflect on that, like how did that happen? How did that thing happen? So sometimes it happens through some carelessness. A lot of times it happened at the root of it because there was actually some thought that came through of something that if we had actually been able to notice that, see that, we might have been able to have some space to make a different choice. And before it comes into action, usually there's a whole train of thought. So we could have seen, you know, if we didn't catch the first one, you know, okay, but, you know, somewhere along the line, somewhere along the plan to stalk your ex, or somewhere along the, you know, uh, plan to take that thing, right, that was maybe being offered, maybe not being offered, you know. Somewhere along the line, you could have caught it, seen it like, oh, this is just a thought, I don't actually have to do that. Like, okay, this is crazy. This is a crazy thought, you know. Like, I'm on the crazy train now, you know. (laughs) So in that moment of mindfulness, you can actually step off the crazy train, you know. You actually have that possibility when you can see through, when you can see that thought as just thought. But without that, without that uh, awareness, then we are stuck under the tyranny. You know, we're believing everything that comes through, some of which are incredibly profound and wise, so also not to discount that we have these beautiful moments, but many of which are not so wise. If you have, if you have thoughts that are not so wise, you are not alone. That's basically uh, uh, all of us until we are completely um, purified, until we've reached the end of that path of Nibbana. So the best you can do is actually just pay attention, you know, try to notice. 
And in that noticing, it really is like that being able to see through, in some ways seeing through like the, the uh, dictator. Like, oh, who's the dictator? What is the dictator internally? You know, who is it who's calling the shots in my own life, in my body, in my mind? Like, what is it that's, that's driving me? And is that uh, what I want to have ruling my life? Or is it not? So in this way, bringing our sense of presence to our experience can bring that sense of spaciousness. And just like in these kind of revolutions, it's like connect with what's really true, the connection. The mindfulness is really a very intimate uh, happening. In fact, I like the term heartfulness better because it feels more about the connection than mindfulness. It's not like, you know, looking up here kind of clinically, but it's really just connecting very closely with what the experience is and knowing it clearly. Now, when we practice in the meditation practice, we practice mindfulness. It's just seeing everything. So the instructions in this is just to see everything as it is, non-judgmental, allow it to be there, see it, let it go, watch it. In your life, in the uh, path of freedom, it's helpful to develop discernment. So it's helpful to know what's there, but also not to let everything play out. So to be able to notice, well, what are the thoughts and emotions coming through that are like these dictators in a negative sense? And what are the ones that are coming through that are actually positive, helpful ones? So this is also in some ways uh, paying attention to the news. You know? So you notice you're paying attention to the news you know, if you're clicking on the New York Times website or CNN or SFGate or something. And you know, notice if there's this compulsion to keep refreshing it. Did something new come up? Did something new come up? You know, is there a new story? And I have to say with some of these, particularly, you know, I, do, I am a believer in local media, so I think it's good to pay attention to local media. But uh, some of what passes for news is like extremely... Uh, <laughs> dubious, like, whether or not you need to know about, uh, you know, who Lindsay Lohan might be dating, or Charlie Sheen said yesterday, or, you know, how much uh, benefit that brings to oneself and all beings is debatable, right? (laughs) So noticing that stuff, you know, noticing that. But the other way you can pay attention to the news is paying attention internally and externally. So notice how much you're paying attention externally, and then put that same effort to also paying attention internally, right? So what's going on in my heart? What's going on in my mind? What's going on here? So in that way, we can continue to bring the practice of contemplation to uh, reading the news, to paying attention to our consumption of news, our relationship to news, uh, and this kind of reflection about how does this relate to what's happening uh, in my own life, and how does this relate to my own freedom? So everything can be fodder on your path. You know, everything, everything. Technology, food, TV, news, internet, right? So the spiritual path, this path to freedom, this uh, one-way path that the Buddha was talking about, uh, can become stronger and stronger. So in some ways, it's like that, those waters that uh, had a destructive effect in the tsunami. They came through and little by little seeped in and then you know, swept everything away. So from a positive standpoint... If you look at those things as obstacles and uh, kilesas and things that are obstacles to you, the more you make this part of your path, this 
paying attention externally, internally, reflection on the three characteristics, reflection on how things externally are related to your path of freedom, the more those floodwaters can rise and take everything away. And then you're left with freedom. So I share those uh, reflections with you tonight. Thank you for your attention. So we have some time for questions, uh, comments, discussion. So a couple questions for you that if you want to uh, reflect on them is, what's your relationship to the news? And in what ways is that a helpful part of your path? In what ways do you feel like there's something for you to pay attention to that could be uh, improved upon? So, yeah. Should we, should we use a mic? Yeah. Okay, we're going to bring the mic over to you. I can hear you. I'll repeat if uh, I'll repeat your question too. So, um, I think it's important to be aware today because so much is coming to the consciousness of so many areas of the world, and people are feeling like they need to take a stand. And uh, I think it is important. There is a lot of um, <coughs> systems that are not working well. Uh, attitudes, uh, governments. Greed, um, the way the world is managed today, I think is very dangerous for most of humanity. Um, the money system is, don't even, I can't even name it what it is. It's just, it's, an, it's a name. So many people are hungry and the world supplies everything we need and it's not working. So I think it's really important, although not easy, but I think it's important to face it and do what you can. I think right now for myself and one of the things I think is important is to gather with other people who care about it and find a way to do something about anything that you care about, you know, the ozone or whatever. Um, whatever. I think it does help to have community around big problems and I think we can learn a lot, especially by using what we learn in right. uh, this type of uh, philosophy. Right. Thank you. So, so yeah, that there's a beneficial aspect to paying attention to what's going on in the world, particularly when there are a lot of things that are going on that are un- injustice or unfair or unskillful, uh, and then taking action as is appropriate for you, as you can, can do, as is skillful for you to help change things. I think um, uh, two things about that. One is that it also can be helpful to um, notice the things that are going well, too. Like, just because the uh, the news is, as I mentioned, like, so much about negativity and about, a lot of it is about, like, people's cruelty to each other, it, I feel like. And uh, people are also, 
very nice to each other sometimes. <laughs> you know, so it's definitely good to pay attention to where there's injustice and to try and act on that. But as a kind of balancing thing, I find it helpful to try to also keep an eye out for the ways in which humans actually are uh, positive to each other and skillful. And you know, it's inspiring, too, to connect with that. The other thing is, and uh, I want to mention this also with that cold kind of tyrant thing, is it's helpful to notice our own relationship to uh, events or movements um, as well. And when there's this kind of solidifying sense of an ego that uh, gets created in relationship to different uh, events that happen in the world. So, for example, in the kind of um, narrative that's being given about, like, um, for example, Gaddafi is like, oh, he's a crazy tyrant and, you know, he's all bad and all this stuff, you know. So certainly when you're killing people, that's not good. So not to say that's, uh, that's good at all. But also there's a lack of compassion or understanding around uh, why people act the way they do. So apparently, uh, you know, Gaddafi's been in power for a long time and he does say things that seem crazy. But apparently part of his uh, starting to become more crazy happened when the U.S. bombed his... Uh, home at one point in the 80s and his um, two-year-old daughter was killed in this bombing. So this does not at all excuse any unskillful, tyrannic or, you know, killing or anything. But it's like, okay, maybe there's some understanding we can have about why people become the way that they do. So I think the place that it's helpful to notice is self-righteousness. So depending on your personality, this could be a bigger or smaller aspect of your relationship to the news, you know. Um, I think those of us in the Bay Area do have a tendency to move towards that uh, kind of <coughs> liberal self-righteousness about things, you know, like, we're so great, we re- recycle so much more than everyone else, and like, you know, we're so much more conscious about the environment, and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So it's just, I think it's just good to notice when there's this sense of um, rigidity, really, and, and to start to notice, like, what does it feel like in your body when that starts to come in? And it, I feel like it's the similar thing that comes in in even just an interpersonal kind of argument when I sort of feel like, oh, I'm right. I'm right, they're wrong, and that's it. I'm not listening to anything else. Like, I know I'm right, they're wrong. So the same thing can happen when the news comes up and it's like, oh, we're right, they're wrong, or, you know, anything like that. So just something to keep an eye out for and also paying attention to the news, too. So, yeah, go ahead. So wonderful to hear you speak again. Thank you. I caught you last time. I don't think I'm alone with this. So much of us, so many of us are so busy in our lives. We see it on the news. It touches us. Uh, for myself, I lay in bed and I think about those people. And I think about those that have children that are there. I have children. I have twins that are seven and a half years old. And I, I don't act globally but I take the feeling and I take it home with me. Those times when I want to be a little bit more short with my daughters, I remember Uh and I think about what's going on in the world and I make a difference right here at home with my children by being more gentle, knowing that that creates a ripple effect out to the world as they are the next generation that is coming. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, that's another reflection that many people have from seeing this um, the whole earthquake tsunami thing is like, uh, you know, people didn't see that coming. So they didn't know that was the last time they're going to see their friend, uh, spouse, kids, whatever, right? 
And we assume oftentimes, like, oh yeah, it's another day, you know, whatever, I'll come home and they'll be there. And, you know, uh, we don't assume it's like the last time we're ever going to see someone when we see them. But you don't know. Like, this is uncertain. Life is uncertain. Like, our own life and death is uncertain. Uh, And if we actually lived with that understanding, uh, we would probably live in a very different way. Like, in a kinder, gentler way, like you're saying, perhaps. In a more forgiving way. Uh, So this helps to remind us about that. And I can tell you, my friends who are uh, living in Japan, they were here maybe a couple of weeks ago for a visit, and you know they had no idea about that. And then they went back, and this whole thing uh, unfolded. And uh, yeah, it's it's a good reminder of uh, the truth of samsara and impermanence. And how do we want to live our life, given that? How do we want to spend our time? Right? Yeah. Um, I, I think a mic is coming over to you, maybe. Over here in the white. Um, I'm reminded during this time, um, particularly the events going on in Japan, because um, a long time ago, back in the 70s, my husband was a conscientious objector and he worked um, at the VA hospital for a Japanese um, researcher who was like the world's expert in the sense of smell. He happened to be from the university uh, in Fukushima, which is where this atomic plant is um, close by. And that is a big university town. And uh, there's a lot of people that live around there. And um, anyway, so my heart really goes out to these people. and. Um, on the one hand, um, we get a huge quantity of news, but I've noticed um, with some dismay that constantly the word democracy is used, and yet the quality of information and education has gone down dramatically mm-hmm. in these past, um, I'd say, particularly since the 80s, it's gone down. It started, you know, back in the 70s when we had people like, I don't know, old Walter Cronkite, and that just all the the news was much more, people were educated and they were filtering the news in a way that really strove to be objective and descriptive. And um, with a great deal of dismay, even if you yourself, as a uh, compassionate person, is trying to filter the news yourself, uh, you don't have um, that quality to work with anymore. And it seems like you really need to be aware of these sound bites and the continual repetition of words. It seems like the more they use the word democracy, Unfortunately, the less democracy we have here in our own country. So um, I'm very grateful, though, because Spirit Rock is an expression of religious freedom, which we still do have. But we just had that conference about, you know, uh, 
oh, about Mus what they, they called it the radicalization of Muslims. And my husband and I, I, another part of our journey was we spent, we went overland to India in the 70s and we got to visit all these different Muslim countries and hello, Muslims are different in different countries all over just like there's no one Christian and uh, although there's certain characteristics that are shared, um, there's very few radical Muslims and I'd like to hear more a reminder of that in our media. Thank you. <laughs> So paying attention, basically, of course, anything you say, I'm going to bring it back to the Dharma because uh, <laughs> that's my job here. So, um, and I think this is helpful, and this is how you make everything sort of fodder for the path. So, yeah, I think um, you know what you're saying about being critical about what you hear in the news. So, what is it that the messages are coming through, and you know about uh, the way democracy is framed, or um, what's being put forward, and um, when you're questioning that, it actually is analogous to the way that I would suggest that we pay attention to our thoughts. So some things that come through our mind, the internal ticker, <laughs> news ticker, right, uh, might be helpful, might be accurate, um, might give you helpful information. And a lot of what comes through is not. So uh, similar to the way that it's really helpful as a consumer of news to be uh, Educated, as you said, or to be aware of, like, well, what is the different? What are the different angles on this? Like, what's going on with that, right? And um, in some ways, now there's such a variety of different news sources, particularly through the um, the web that you can get. Like, there actually are a lot of different alternative news sources you can get, mm -hmm. and there is uh, um, more greater access for you know anyone who's going to like write a blog. It's going to be there, and you know, there's like many different sources of information. So. Uh, in some ways, that allows us to have greater access to a variety of viewpoints than, say, uh, you know, one person. Like when it was just the CBS News. This is, you know, Walter Cronkite doing. You know, <laughs> I'm telling you the truth, right? Um, so the, there's something about the diversity of, of different potential sources that's helpful, um, but also still, like, one has to filter them, right? One has to pay attention. So similarly, like, pay attention to your thoughts. Like, notice what's coming through there. Uh, in some ways, I think it's helpful to relate to your thoughts the way that you relate to dreams. So uh, consider the way that you relate to your dreams. So you go to sleep, you wake up, uh, sometimes you remember your dream, sometimes you don't. Maybe there's a sense of like, oh, I wonder what that meant. You kind of take what it meant. Sometimes there's no really clear meaning behind it. You let it go. Uh, so as an experiment, I would... Uh, invite you to see if you can relate to your waking thoughts the same way that you relate to your sleeping thoughts. So our sleeping thoughts is kind of like we take what's useful and then we let go of the rest. So if there was some dream that had some symbolism, like, oh, that gave me some insight into this, and okay, there's this pervasive emotional sense of this, you know. But we don't necessarily believe everything in the dream, usually, right? We don't believe it literally. So similarly, literally don't believe every literal thing that comes through your literal mind. <laughs> so, just try it out. <laughs> um, another thing I, I like to talk about too is so there's one angle of paying attention to news as consumption, and to relate this to the precepts, which um, I feel like is also a helpful framework. So that's like paying attention to the fifth precept, the precept that's around uh, intake of 
substances that intoxicate the mind. Right? So paying attention to your intake of information in the same way as you pay attention to what your diet is and what kind of substances you take in and how that affects your mind-body you know, towards clarity, wisdom, freedom, or away from that. The other one is, of course, paying attention to uh, speech. So the, there's a precept around uh, wise speech, skillful speech. So in that, it's about um, avoiding, this is as the speaker, avoiding uh, false speech, so avoiding lying, avoiding abusive speech, so harsh, negative speech, avoiding uh, gossip, slander, and then avoiding like idle chatter, it's called. So if you run these uh, four different filters through mm-hmm. our relationship to news, it can be interesting too. So first of all, of course, paying attention to what's true or not. So, you know, how much of what I'm listening to is true, false, and then how much of what I convey too as a uh, you know, news reporter. Um, you know, even informally among my friends as a news reporter or a reposter on, you know, social media or whatever. Then harsh abusive. So paying attention both to how we share things, what we say, but also paying attention to what we take in. So what kinds of things are we taking in and how does that affect us? Um, The gossip slander one. So uh, I think that's particularly interesting to pay attention to in terms of like, you know, entertainment news as it goes by, (laughs) you know. So, you know, like I was saying, like, uh, you know, what is my relationship to famous people and their love lives? And like, uh, <laughs> uh, in, what, in what way is this useful to, or interesting or, you know? And so maybe you think like, ah, oh, it's benign. I, I know a lot of people who are like, you know, hey, you know, I read People magazine. So what? It's like actually, you know, that's not the worst thing to do. Um, and it's true. And it's good to notice like, well, what's my relationship to this too? So if it's like, okay, this particular thing helps me to relax and I actually gain insight into the human condition through this or, you know, something like that. Okay, right. Uh, (laughs) But uh, on the other hand, there is some way in which it can just be like this, uh, like a gossip mill or something like that. It's like, oh, let's look at this, the, um, uh, let's look at what's happening here in these people's lives. And uh, it can just basically be like a giant waste of time, I would argue, right? (laughs) Now, not necessarily a giant waste of time, more of a waste of time than playing video games or, you know, whatever else, right? So it's not to, like, be down on that to the exclusion of anything else. But it's just good for us to pay attention, you know, a la life is short, you don't know it ends, etc. You know, how are we spending our time? The days and nights are passing by relentlessly. How am I spending my time? Right. Um, and then the last one, the idle chatter one, I think this is particularly noticeable when there is this barrage of news that we can take in all the time. So what is the effect of constantly taking in information versus silence? How much is a helpful level to take in? What kinds of news is it helpful for us to uh, participate in and consume? So with the idle chatter one in speech, it's like talking about frivolous subjects or useless things. As lay people, um, it's less strict than it is for monastics. So people who are monks and nuns in the Buddha's order were told not to talk about kings and the weather and this and that, you know, like not to talk about all kinds of different things. Like basically what's left when you t- take away all the things they're not supposed to talk about is the Dharma. Like you're supposed to talk about the Dharma, right? Um, and uh, as lay people, there's a little bit more kind of social talk that we do and I think that's fine. But paying attention to like, well, how much of that is helpful? And what kinds of things do I talk about in that context with people? Uh, 
also paying attention to when you're talking, usually you're not listening, right? Like when your mouth is moving, you're usually not paying attention to what someone else is saying. So how much am I talking versus listening, hearing uh, other people, right, connecting? And then likewise, how much am I talking uh, and or listening to other people versus also listening to myself? So being connected with how I'm feeling. Uh, What's the emotion that's here? Being connected with my own experience of suffering in my life, my own experience of happiness, of discomfort, all of this stuff. So just running it through the the lens of the, the precepts also can be helpful. So others, uh, questions, comments? Yes, gentleman in the back over here. Hi, uh, thanks for the subject. Um, I had an observation about my own mind um, regarding, connected to what you're talking about, which is the, um, the amount that I cherish bad news for other people. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah. Um, for instance, Charlie Sheen. Uh-huh. Um, and um, found, I find it, you know, I'm fascinated to see this, you know, to see him go down. Uh-huh. And then when I'm indulging in this, I ask myself, like, well, why am I, why am I getting off on this, you know? Right. And, um, and I think you know, there's, there's that saying that misery loves company. Yeah. And so there's there's those the part of my mind, the sort of still kind of really attached and grasping and unhappy that wants everyone else to the whole world to be like that. I think you know, and I think that's why I think negative news in a way serves that purpose. It's like we're for people that aren't happy, it, it gives you validation. Do you know? And and so we don't. A lot of us don't even want to hear good, new, happy news. You know, the part that yeah. that rejoices for somebody else. If I'm unhealthy, I don't want to go there. I want right. them to come down to where I am. Right. You know, so that's my observation. Yeah. No. Thank you for sharing that. And you're not alone, since he has one million Twitter followers and you know a few days or something like that. So um, I think a lot of people have something of that um, experience. And it's good to notice. You know, like you're saying, to ask, well, what's going on with this? And for some people, it's just like, I want to distract myself from my life. So I'll watch this other drama playing out here with someone else. It also is like, it's true, this person is going through a hard time in you know, some way. It's like going through their, their difficulty. So the, and, and it's interesting that in our society, there's this huge industry around entertainment news and around celebrity news. You know? And um, there are all these magazines, you know, like the like People Weekly and Us and different things, and then Inquirer and so on. And sometimes I think those things should be called um, it should be called like Dukkha Weekly, you know, because <laughs> it's actually like okay, here's all these uh, like rich, famous people, and they're suffering. Like this person has a crash, their car, and this person is like addicted to this, and the demise of their uh, relationships, and you know. Um, like all, all of this kind of stuff. And so I think the, the positive angle that we can take from this is like seeing the truth of the way things are is you can be rich and you can be famous and uh, you can be successful and you are not immune from the winds of change. You are not immune from suffering, sickness, death, loss, gain, loss, pleasure, pain, 
disrepute, etc. You know, no amount of money protects you from that. No amount of good looks will save you forever, etc., etc. So the, the Dharma angle on that is kind of like, I mean, this is actually an equanimity reflection, is like things are the way they are, and all beings are heirs to their own karma. You know? So it's like you reap what you sow in your life, and also no one is immune from anything, any of these things. So you can't buy your way out of old age, sickness, and death. You, know? you can't cash in your fame uh, or your resume or your Twitter followers you know, to, uh, to escape uh, Sometimes good things happen in your life and sometimes bad things happen in your life, right? So there's a part of us that might rejoice, be like, oh, look, it's happening to that person too, right? So then you notice that and then maybe, you know, check yourself, like, okay, so that thought coming through, ooh, that's unskillful thought, okay? Like, just notice that, notice that, and, you know, don't get on that train of that long thing. But then also maybe you can notice it from this slightly different angle that's like, yeah, like, Life is dukkha, and like no one can escape, even if you have a hit TV show. <laughs> you know, it's like that, that is not going to save you in samsara. You know, it's just all, and sometimes great things happen, and sometimes difficult things happen. So then we can maybe muster up a little compassion, right? <laughs> sometimes it's like, yeah, you know, you take birth in this world, and you are subject to so many different things, and there is no escape, and no amount of money or uh, Academy Awards or anything or Emmys is going to, you know, protect you from that. And uh, the Buddha did not mention Academy Awards and Emmy Awards, but he did mention Dukkha plenty. So that's reflection on that, you know. And in this time also, like various, you know, kings and rich people and, you know, it's like people come to him in these um, suttas and, uh, you know, talk to him about their difficulties. And you get some of these similar things, like there's various royalty who have meltdowns, a la <laughs> Charlie Sheen, you know, and things like that, and difficult things happening to them and so on. And, um, yeah, it's like all part of the mix of life's, uh, life's rich and cruel and beautiful pageant all the time. So, yeah, someone in the back there. Maybe I'll take a little more. And, and yet it, it seems that uh, watching the news, you know, one of the things we learn is that there's uh, an abundance of suffering for people, uh, in fact, more than their share, it would seem. And of course, that's true here too, I mean, with people that we know and relatives and stuff who have lost children and children and husband and, you know, all this stuff. Mm -hmm. Perfectly decent, nice people. And, and the question they always ask is, why me? You know, I'm living a good life. I'm not, this, what is this, my karma? So the, the question I'm asking it, it doesn't, probably doesn't have an answer, but I'd like to hear his perspective on it. Uh, it's, what is that all about? Uh, why does it in fact seem, and we've all had this experience, that uh, some people are just loaded up with suffering, with grief, with loss. Whereas others, in the course of their life, very little. I, I know this is true in my own family, with mm -hmm. both my sister and my brother, other people I've known. From a Buddhist standpoint, what perspective, what can you say about that? Uh, yeah, so is a, is a very profound question, and one that uh, is there in many different uh, 
religions. And in some ways, that was the Buddha's question himself. So the Buddha and his spiritual search was launched into that from suffering, from seeing suffering. Uh, and some version of that question, like, what is the meaning of that? Like, what, what is going on with suffering for people, and how can we get out of that, was basically his, his uh, quest. And in his quest, he kind of brought it back to a very uh, deep level of paying attention to what are the causes of suffering, and what is the way to remove those causes, which is basically the path itself. Right? So in some ways, he was like, you know, the, the worry about, like, well, why... Is this person suffering and not this person suffering? Um, I think it's helpful in the bigger frame, framework mm-hmm. to also see that sometimes, just like the way that we label things, like th- this person always suffers, this person doesn't suffer at all. Like, for example, people who seem like they don't suffer at all, they probably suffer on some level, it's just not at the magnitude of maybe someone else, right? So nobody gets away kind of scot-free in that way. And also the people who have a lot of suffering in their life. And this includes us too. So some people here, you know, a lot of people come to practice because there's been a lot of difficult things happening in their life. Like dukkha is a, the main driver of people to meditation centers, I think, you know, is uh, dukkha, right, facing that, you know. Uh, usually people don't come being like, I'm really happy, everything's going fine, you know. It's like, I'm suffering, help me get out of this. Right? So paying attention and just seeing that, like, oh yeah, that's true. And also, even when you're in a period of your life when it seems like everything is going wrong, you have moments in which there's still beauty. Like there's moments in which uh, you're not totally soaking in it, too. Maybe overall you're going through a bad period, but it's really good to notice those moments that break through, whether it's like, oh, I feel sunshine, it's good, or just tiny moments of actually feeling happy in that. And then there's what your mind does with that. So sometimes the mind wants to reject that because it's so attached to the story of like, I am suffering big time, and I'm suffering more than anyone else, right? And then likewise, the other side. Some people want to be attached to the story of, like, I'm great, everything is happy for me, there's nothing wrong with me, right? I never have any problems, I'm a happy person. So then those people have to block out any moments of suffering that come about. So that's first just to say that, you know, there's holes in all of those different ones. And then the larger question about, you know, how those things play out, so... Some of the explanation in the Buddhist teaching is around karma. So in the, the explanation is that uh, you know, we sow seeds with the intentions that we take in speech and action. And the intentions that we take that are wholesome sow wholesome seeds. The intentions that we take that are unwholesome sow negative seeds. And everything doesn't always bloom necessarily from that, but those intentions that were sowed that were wholesome, positive, can only come up as wholesome, generous, positive. Those intentions that were sowed that were negative can only come up as negative, unpleasant results. So you're not completely in control of everything, and there's all these different conditions that play themselves out, kind of like, okay, you plant, you know, they say if you plant a, a mango seed, and then if the right conditions are there, the soil, the water, the temperature, it can only become a mango tree. It might not become a mango tree if it doesn't get enough water, if there's not enough soil, etc. if someone digs it up. But if it does turn into something, it's going to be a mango tree. And then if you plant something else that's like a seed of uh, something that's a, a negative one, so like the ginkgo tree is the one I like to use, like smelly kind of fruits, right? If it gets the right water, sunlight, etc., the only thing it's going to turn into is a ginkgo tree. Like the ginkgo seed is not going to turn into the mango tree, Mango seed is not going to turn into the ginkgo tree, right? So 
there's a more uh, fodder for us for why it's helpful to pay attention to what are the intentions that are going through our mind and body? Which ones are we following up on? Which ones are we acting on? You know, because that's actually the point of freedom for us. So back again to this very moment. Like whatever's happened down the road in your hundredth past life, you know, right now it's kind of water under the bridge, fruition, not fruition, you know. But what you can pay attention to is what am I doing right now? So what's going through my mind and heart right now? Which of those am I watering? Which of those am I planting? Which of those am I practicing? So what am I practicing in my life right now? You know, am I practicing distraction? Am I practicing collectedness? Am I practicing kindness and generosity? Am I practicing jealousy and hatred? You know, what's going on? And every moment we have a choice. You know, we have a choice to make with that. So that's the uh, inspiring news is that there is a possibility of freedom through that. There is the possibility of training our heart and mind. There is the possibility of planting a whole mango grove, <laughs> you know, more and more. Uh, but it will take the uh, attention to be present, to know what we're planting. So we've come to the end of our time here. Um, a few announcements, and then we will sit together very briefly. Temple Smith is here next Monday night. Uh, Temple is a friend of mine and a great teacher, so I encourage you to come. Uh, thank you to all the volunteers who helped out today. Thank you for running the mic around there. Thanks for people who greeted people at the door and everything like that. Um, it would be help if people can... Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.